You know, it's almost impossible to report on this FTX story because every time you're ready to go live and prepare, more news happens and this episode is not actually any different. We've just had a release from FTX and this, remember, includes the FTX American company too that they've now filed for Chapter 11 proceedings, which means that they've filed for bankruptcy. And we've also had news that the person who will run the bankruptcy is not going to be SPF because SPF has stepped down as CEO of Alameda and we have someone new in charge and it's someone that you would never ever ever suspect. So we're going to talk about what is going what the next step is if you're an investor in FTT if you've got funds on the exchange we're going to talk about what this is going to do for the industry. It's going to be a massive 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 show but it's a Friday banter and I've got a banter panel for you second to none. So let's do this fam let's do it let's do it let's do it. Out of bed, bitch, go. Get up, get up, get the guy, go. Gotta wake up, gotta wake up, bitch, get up. Get up, get up, get up. I wanted to get rid of the song. In fact, I've wanted to get rid of the song many times. You guys keep telling me I can't do it, so I can't do it. That's just the way it is. Anyway, welcome back, guys. Uh, what, a, what a day, another day. Every time we think it's going to be okay and we've seen the worst of it, we get more and more and more bombshells dropped in us. As I said, the latest bombshell in the saga, FTX has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings, um, and uh, SBF has resigned as CEO of FTX, and he's been replaced, and he's been replaced by someone who is known as a pit bull or a bulldog. Um, and his name is John J. Ray III. He was the lawyer who was brought up to clean Enron. And that's probably pretty appropriate because I guess that when he opens up this can of worms that is FTX, he's going to find a whole can of worms, which is probably going to be possibly more complicated than Enron. What we know for now is that there are over 130 companies in the structure that are going to be uh, investigated or are, are going to be liquidated. Remember, I showed you guys this uh, organogram yesterday, which was just one organo organogram when we were speaking about the Baham bah Bahamanian uh, regulator also appointing a liquidator. Well, it now seems that the liquidator, uh, the USA, has also now uh, put FTX or FTX has filed for Chapter 11 uh, in the United States as well. What has that done to the markets? Well, here we are again. Another little dip on the markets. Uh, now Bitcoin back up to 16,901. We were at, uh, a few minutes ago. Let's actually go to the hourly chart. Just makes it a bit easier. We dipped to 16,414. And then we're bounced, we bounced back to 16,925. And I guess what that is, is that it's testament to how resilient the market is now. And the, and the fact that the market has probably priced in quite a bit of this, uh, of this stuff. So listen, it's Friday. It's Friday banter. I've got a banter panel for you, second to none. I've got a VC, I've got Eric Voorhees, and I've got an exchange owner with us today to, uh, to break down what's going on and what we can expect and the implications we can expect on the, on the rest of the industry and how this thing is going gonna, is gonna to unfold. So what I need you guys to do, 
Subscribe to the channel if you're not subscribers. If you're not subscribers, welcome. You've come to a great place, the Banter Fam. Here for you, bring your crypto love and crypto wisdom, good times and bad times. And if you are a Banter Fam member, well, listen, help us, help us, help us. Like this content, share this content, and just tell the algorithm that we're still a good, safe place to be. All right, let's do this. Eric, you've had a, a lot of time in the media of late. I think the, 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 the big bang for you recently was your debate with Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, I think we all watched the debate with Sam Bankman-Fried. And I don't know, it felt at the time, you felt a little bit uncomfortable. Did you pick that up? Yeah, uh, he certainly was uncomfortable during that debate. That was, uh, that was two hours long. And basically, we talked about to what degree regulation is appropriate in crypto and, and in particular, how it relates to DeFi and this DCCPA bill coming through, um, which he's been heavily involved in. And yeah, he he did he did seem really uncomfortable in the debate. I I thought I was just like doing a great job, you know, debating him. But maybe it was because he was running a uh, like a Ponzi scheme. That might have been. That, I mean, isn't it ironic that this was the man lobbying for regulation? This was the man who was, you know, he was, I guess, you could say, at the forefront of regulation for this industry. He was the man lobbying for regulation. He was the man going out there trying to represent the industry. In fact, I think I have a, a video clip here, uh, which has been going around, going around the internet. Uh, I think probably worth playing it right now, uh, this clip over here. No sound, Ran. Oh, okay. The sound not coming through. Okay, so unfortunately, damn, we're not we're not getting the sound in the video, which is a pity because it would have been pretty good. All right, let me bring the other guests on. I've got uh, Avishal and I've got uh, Ben. Guys, welcome, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Ben is the founder of Bybit, and I thought uh, super super interesting to get an exchange owner here and one of the biggest exchange. And Avishal, who's no uh, uh, stranger to our show, he's uh, he's a VC, uh, Electric Capital. And uh, one of the biggest players in the space, guys. Welcome. Any surprises? Or I mean, let let Ben. Let me go to you. You're an exchange owner. You you've seen you you see the numbers. You see the transaction vol volumes. You see or you saw how FTX was was active in the market. Were you surprised at all? Uh, I think I'm just as surprised as everyone else. Uh, for the past few days, it was it was sleepless and. Uh, like you said, uh, news coming out every every single hour, and uh, I think we're just as surprised as everyone else. Um, you know, I, I think during the uh, especially the last bull run, um, everyone saw the raise of uh, of FTX was really taken advantage and, and got huge. Um, I, I think from expect exchange perspective, uh, we know our numbers and we we kind of compared. Uh, we we know we have more clients and we have more volume, uh, but. Uh, the thing we're lacking is we don't have an entity like Alameda who is literally making all the trades and also uh, investment into all these projects. That kind of gives you the assumption that uh, they made massive profit from all these uh, investment and also trading activities. So that kind of built in, and I think that's the assumption that almost everyone had uh, to justify all these uh, expendings and all these crazy uh, Washington lobbies and all that. Um, so uh, that's why I, I think for us, it's, it's a crazy surprise. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, I mean, I think if we now analyze what happened with uh, with FTX, and again, no one's got the facts. I think everybody's speculating, but the speculation is that they leveraged their FTT token, which they themselves created, and somehow loaned it to Alameda Research, who then went and leveraged it to go and invest, and probably left a big hole in the balance sheet of Alameda Research, which then couldn't repay the loans <laughs> back to FTX. Is that how you guys see the situation? Eric, I'm, I'm, I'm not, looking, not looking quite. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I, uh, I don't think the issue was that they lent out their own FTT token. The issue was that they lent out customer deposits to Alameda, and Alameda provided FTT token back to FTX as collateral. So it was an issue of rehypothecating customer money, not telling them they were doing that, and then just blatantly lying and saying that they weren't doing that for the preceding months. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I, if they just stopped at the, uh, at the at the Alameda thing and the blow up, they, that may have actually been recoverable. And you know, like the downstream consequence, if you like shut it off at Alameda, that's that's sort of um, you unwind a bunch of bad debt. But as soon as they touch those customer funds to try to prop this whole thing up, that's where you jump into fraud. That's when you jump into criminal issues. That's where you jump into that's a whole new world. And then and then you have this blow up. You know, and and the downstream losers ultimately are the users, unfortunately. And he was saying even like one day before the collapse, everything is fine. Customer money is fine. FTX is fine. That's, um, that's clear fraud, right? I mean, that, um, yeah. not, not equivocal. <clears throat> so, I mean, what do you think happened? You know, you got this 20-something-year-old, call him the blue-eyed boy of crypto, who came in, raised a whole lot of cash. We saw notes uh, around Sequoia about how impressed they were with him as a founder when he came in to, to raise the capital around FTX. W what do you think happened from that point? I mean, negligence, not keeping his eye on the ball, not understanding. What do you think? Well, again, the, the, the trading errors seem to have occurred at Alameda. Um, and that, that can happen to anyone, right? So trading errors happen, losses happen, nothing weird or wrong about that. The mistake and the, the moral failing is lending customer money out to Alameda to then patch that up. Yeah, I see that. I'm just sorry. I'm just uh, looking here. We see that SPF has actually just tweeted. He says, hi, all. Today I filed FTX, FTX US, and Alameda for voluntary uh, Chapter 11 proceedings in the United States. I'm really sorry again that we ended up here. Hopefully things can find a way to recover Hopefully, this can bring some amount of transparency, trust, and governance to them. Ultimately, hopefully, it can be better for customers. This doesn't necessarily mean the end for their companies or their ability to provide value and funds to their customers chiefly and can be consistent with other routes. Ultimately, I'm optimistic that Mr. Ray and others can help provide whatever is best. I'm going to work on giving clarity on where things are in, an, in, in terms of user recovery ASAP. I'm piecing together all the details, but I was shocked to see things unravel unravel the way they did earlier this week. I will soon write up a more complete post uh, on play-by-play, on play play, but I want to make sure I get it right when I do. So this is, again, him coming out and uh, uh, announcing that he's filed for Chapter 11 on both entities, both the Bahamanian entity and the, uh, the, the U.S. entity. Now, I, I mean, I thought and the impression that we got in the media was that the U.S. entity was kind of ring-fenced by regulators because the U.S. was so highly regulated. It almost felt like there were no shenanigans between the U.S. entity and Alameda 
And certainly no shenanigans with the U.S. entities, user funds, and Alameda. Are you guys surprised that the U.S. entity is also included in this? No. Uh, I, I just wrote a blog piece about this concept uh, just this morning. I posted it. Um, people get tricked, duped, misled by this idea of regulatory safety. Like FTX, their slogan was the safe regulated way to buy Bitcoin and other digital assets. Um, and this happens. And it wasn't because they were lying about being regulated. They, they are heavily regulated, both entities. They have all sorts of compliance. The, the issue is that that stuff is, is a facade. And the only real security that you get in these markets is when you can trust immutable open source code. This is an appeal to DeFi and is yet again an example of why people should not be trusting centralized intermediaries. <clears throat> I must say, you know what's interesting is, I mean, it's, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ron. Go ahead, I'm sure. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, it, it's, I mean, the, the regulations are really, I, I do think are important. Like, good regulations are important, and regulatory clarity is important. Um, and that's one of the biggest things that we don't have right now in the U.S. And I think this is, you know, upstream of, of the fraud. I think the lack of regular, regulatory clarity is, is, a, is a contributor here because it, it pushes people to offshore places and it creates more opaqueness rather than transparency. And as a result of that, it's very, very hard, even, even if you know, some subsidiary is regulated to actually know what's going on. Uh, and I do think DeFi fixes this. And I think in many ways, what everybody in the space has learned is we've, we've relearned the lesson of 2008, right? Like the regulations are only as good as the people who follow them. And, and as soon as you have somebody who commits fraud, you know, what are you gonna do? Like that's the, the regulation doesn't stop that. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think a lot of people in a very, very painful way are relearning the lessons of 2008 right now. And my hope is that if they do learn those lessons in the right way, they basically relearn the lesson that's, that Satoshi learned. And that was you know, in the original Bitcoin white paper is, yeah, regulations are fine as long as people choose to follow them. And wouldn't it be better if we had a system where it didn't matter if somebody was trying to follow the regulations because you could just audit it. You could just see if they were actually following the rules. And that's clearly a better system. Um, so I, I don't think this is a regulatory failing necessarily. I think it, it's a human failing. And the lesson from, from Bitcoin and DeFi is ideally we can create these systems where even fraudulent humans can't, can't cause these kinds of issues. I must say, uh, before this week, I was always one that, you know, that sat there and said, we don't want regulation in crypto. Let's keep regulations away from crypto. But I think this week, after seeing this week and seeing three arrows and things and, and seeing celsius and everything else that, that's happened i think the one thing that we've noticed is that the failures that are, the biggest failures that have happened in this industry have happened by centralized entities and i mean yes we have had some failures of smart contracts and experiments that have failed and let's talk about for example luna which you know i think was very different from this because that was a concept that failed and with it of course liquidated a whole lot of people but it does seem that the centralized entities are the ones that have failed us the most here and so, you know, instead of saying from now, I don't want regulation, I think I've broken it up in my head into two pieces. And the one piece is, if you're going to be a centralized player in a decentralized world, then you should get as much regulation as, a, as centralized players get, and you should be subject to scrutiny, and you should public, publish proof of reserves and whatever else. If you're going to play, if you're going to be a decentralized player in the decentralized world, well, then you're, you're regulated by the code of the smart contract. And that's the divide that I've made. 
Eric, I know you've got some very passionate views about it. And I think the reason I'm, I'm bringing this to you is because I think for a while we're going to operate with centralized players using decentralized technology like Coinbase, like Bybit, like Binance, and, it, I mean, and like FTX. And I think one thing that we've, we've kind of learned is that you know, it is the centralized players a lot of the time that are letting us down. How do you see the landscape for optimal regulation after this week? So I appreciate your division between custodians and decentralized systems. That's absolutely the right starting point to understand. Um, but even you convey this as though there wasn't regulation before. These centralized entities are heavily regulated. They are regulated as financial intermediaries and they follow all kinds of different compliance, hundreds and hundreds of pages of laws that have been built over the years. This is not a case where we didn't have regulation and thus FTX happened. FTX happened and was able to grow so big uh, enshrined under the protection of regulation. So the, the lesson here isn't more regulation. The lesson here is laws and the squishy subjective actions of humans are always going to be problematic and risky and will often fail. And we have an alternative, which is immutable code. And let's start moving people in that direction. Sure, if people want to like try to make the laws better, go for it. They won't. They'll just make the laws more complicated, more onerous, more burdensome, and they'll end up driving people even more off seas. Mm -hmm. So let's, um, we're offshore. Let's push people toward DeFi and let's understand that like open, immutable smart contracts are actually a step function improvement over the regulations and political di diktats of, <clears throat> of the government. So, I mean, if I read between the lines of what you're saying, and forgive me if I'm going maybe a few steps ahead, but if I read between the lines of what you're saying, you're kind of saying that this may actually be long-term, I'm not going to call it a blessing, but kind of a blessing for the industry. And why? Because it shows the, the, the collapse of the centralized entities versus the DeFi entities. And now consumers can look at this and say, look, either I want to be involved with a centralized entity or I'm going to put my money and trade on something like a Uniswap or something that is completely decentralized. I think if the lesson people take away is okay, there are centralized custodians and there is decentralized finance and they're very different things. And I want to understand both. That's, that's great progress. Most people have no conception that you can have a financial system without intermediaries. The entire banking system is only intermediaries. So it's going to take some time culturally for society to recognize that this new paradigm exists. And, um, I don't want to say that the collapse of FTX is a blessing. I don't think the regulators are going to use this to uh, hold up DeFi as our solution. They're going to use this to put down more regulations. Why are none of them accountable for the failing of their prior regulations? I don't know. Are any of them going to be returning the tens of millions of dollars that Sam donated to their campaigns? Absolutely not. I wish people would stop looking to the appeal of government, which fails over and over and over again. The 2008 financial crisis happened amidst the most heavily regulated industry on earth. So let's stop looking to that as our solution and start actually looking to open source immutable code, which is here and is working. Wow, okay. Well, I think one of the challenges with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back on Eric a little bit. So, you know, I think the, the fundamental failing is still a human one, but 
the reality is we're going to get centralized entities. Like most people can't manage their keys. They need to be able to call customer support and say, Hey, can I, can I, can you reset my password? Like, you know, I think those entities are going to exist. And if they exist for reasons of convenience, there are going to be questions about what, what responsibilities do they have and what, uh, you know, what liabilities do they have and what are the guardrails? And if somebody does have some sort of malfeasance, what do we do about it? And I think that there is a role for government there, right? Like I think, you know, the criminal prosecution that's going to happen here or the unwinding that's going to happen, the bankruptcy, you, you do need some sort of entity to step in and, and solve those sorts of issues. And I think there's a, there's a, the other side of this is that, you know, the government exists, right? And so, Practically and pragmatically speaking, it's not like we can we can say they don't exist. And so let's not deal with them. You know, I think I think when you have things like law enforcement, I think we have to inform them about where those lines are. Like I thought, Eric, I thought your debate with Sam around, well, what how is the front end different than email? Right. I think that's actually a really interesting question. Right. And, and I, I think the law enforcement folks are really going to fall on one side of it. And, and a lot of crypto people are going to follow on a different side of it. And so the fact that the government exists sort of as a, as a prior here means we can't ignore it. And so then we have to figure out how to interface with it. So I think there's, you know, the central entities will exist. And there are, there are a number of questions that come out of that sort of reality that they're going to exist. And the government does exist. And there are a number of realities that come out of the fact that they do exist that we sort of have to deal with. Yeah, I agree so, with most of that. Yeah. So what do you think the impact of what happened this week specifically is on on the rest of the industry and i mean when i say the rest of the industry i think there's there's wide-reaching implications <clears throat> the first implication is i think the regulators are, are now scrutinizing crypto we saw the white house come out yesterday and say that they're scrutinizing crypto we saw gary gensler on cnbc yesterday and he's now saying that we need more regulations in crypto so i think one we've opened a can of worms for all the regulators to come in and have a field day so let's address that first the regulatory side of it. And then let's look at the spin up for the rest of the industry, because what we know is we know that FTX was a web of companies with a web of investments. They bailed out a lot of companies. They bailed out BlockFi, they bailed out Voyager, or were due to bail out BlockFi and, and, and bail out Voyager. Seems that those, those bailouts may not be as solid as, as, as they thought. Uh, we've got investments that FTX and Alameda made. Um, so let's, let's, let's we can look at the, the implications, but let's start off by looking at the legal implications and ramifications. I'm going to start with you, Ben. What do you think? How do you think the regulators are going to respond to this? Have we given them a license to regulate us even further, more unreasonably? Um, I, I sure um, regulators will look into crypto uh, a lot more strict uh, with this uh, incidents that happened. So I, I think as a whole industry. Um, it is open up a whole kind of worms for them to really kind of regulate the whole space. That giving them a lot more reason why they want to regulate the space. You know, I want to touch on Eric's point that I think as a centralized exchange myself, the reason we're in this space is definitely because we believe in this technology. We believe in the immutable code. And we see ourselves as the the gateway to Web3 or, or blockchain, right? And, uh, and you know, I, I think as everyone realized, uh, when we bring people into this industry, you need a bridge, uh, something people can relate to, something is user-friendly with customer support and all of that. Uh, so I, I, I don't think a bad actor uh, explains either uh, 
you know, uh, decentralization is good, regulation is bad, or it's actually, I, I think it's also a human error that uh, a bad actor happened. A bad actor can happen also in DeFi. We've seen a lot of, you know, kind of bad act rug pulls happening in DeFi as well. Um, so I, I think it's up to the industry to really self kind of discipline. And, and, and like you said, uh, exchanges, uh, proof of reserves, um, you know, uh, you, we are not a bank. We're simply a custodian. We, we should never touch clients fund uh, and that kind of uh, basic ethics. Yeah. Okay. Eric, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I agree that custodians will be around for a very long time and I'm not advocating that everyone just like switch to DeFi and we pretend that custodians don't exist. I think custodians are very important. They can often be highly economic, economically efficient. They have a, uh, an important role. Um, however, there is something beyond that which people need to understand. And yes, some of the DeFi protocols have had you know rug pulls and scams in that as well. But the fundamental difference is that that runs on open source code that people can read. The public can see exactly how these contracts execute. You cannot ever understand exactly how a centralized intermediary will execute because it has the subjective behaviors of, of its operators always in play. So there's a, there's a step function change in the ability to know what will happen and the transparency with open source blockchains that you can never have with a, with a custodian. I mean, I think you, Eric, I think you say that, and I agree with you for anyone who's smart enough to read code and to understand code. But most people, when they interact with a smart contract, have zero idea what they interact with. And even if they want to have an idea, the type of and level of expertise that they need to understand what this smart contract is going to do to your computer and to your wallet and to anything that's connected with it, it is. I mean, I, I don't know if that's, if that's, that's a reality. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. I'm not um, suggesting that each person is auditing you know, smart contract code. But that some portion of the community can audit the code and see how it works is a step function change than that no one in the community can audit and see how a centralized exchange works. And if you add in the iterative nature of markets, those smart contracts, which end up demonstrating success in the marketplace and which become trustworthy, can gain in reputation over time. So you can, you can earn reputation through open source code without everyone having to read every line of code. That can never be done in centralized intermediaries. Like you can, right. never, you can never copy a good actor's um, code from a, intermediary, from a centralized intermediary and then build on top of it. So there's always I mean, going to be humans involved, but you can absolutely take the good code of a smart contract that has been working in the wild for years and know that you've built on something that is, that is sound. So, Eric, then I've got to ask you, what is your view of centralized exchanges? I mean, the way you're, you're saying, you're saying, you're saying, look, uh, I don't want to say you're saying centralized exchanges are bad. You're just saying decentralized exchanges are much better. What, what is your view around centralized exchanges and, and operators like NFTX, a Binance, and a Bybit. Yeah, I like that centralized intermediaries exist. I have been an advocate of Coinbase, for example, for ten years. Um, you know, you know, they get so much crap just because they're the big guys, but they have done so much to help onboard people into crypto. I absolutely appreciate that. Um, I understand that model, and many, most of the intermediaries are trustworthy. But what I'm trying to get at is that. With crypto, there is something now beyond that. There is, there is like a higher level of existence, a higher level of transparency and immutability. And us as the industry should be always pointing to that and helping people move 
from the fiat financial world through, you know, some custodial arrangements as they learn and into the non-custodial world of decentralized finance. That is decentralized finance is the only way we actually get open permissionless finance for the world. Right. So every company that says that that's an important attribute needs to be pointing the way toward DeFi. Um, and I would hope that any any good actor, centralized custodian, while providing a good service, can still be doing that for people. And, uh, yeah, I actually want to echo on that point. Uh, actually, I we do also believe uh, in Bybit that this is the direction of the industry is heading towards. Uh, when given the choice of uh, a user-friendly, uh, decentralized uh, product and service, why not? It offers extra layer of, of transparency and uh, and, and uh, safety for users. So I, I think Bybit as exchange, uh, our job is to take users there. Uh, so we see ourselves not only as a, a, a way to uh, intermediate, to transfer the, the, the fiat to coins, uh, I, I think we're going to be one of the first exchanges actually integrating with the decentralized exchange, uh, fully integrated into our main uh, user base. And, and also with our Web3 page, uh, you know, uh, offer the complete gateway uh, for users, uh, owner users uh, to uh, interact with uh, decentralized protocols uh, and also give them that centralized uh, uh, ease of use, custom support and all the things they used to. So that's our job, and I think uh, I completely agree. I think this is where the industry is heading towards. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Go, go ahead. Let me clarify a little bit. Um, my last comment: it is somewhat unrealistic to like expect or desire that centralized custodians will like help people move on into DeFi, right? Maybe some of them will, but that's not a moral obligation. I think it's cool when they do. Um, What's, what's really more important is like from the regulatory perspective for any politician or regulator watching, so if you're going to be applying regulations down on intermediaries that you don't lump the decentralized world into that, that's, that's key because if they try to do that, then they start breaking the magic of, of this better system that we have. So my, my plea really is toward the regulators, not so much toward the, the centralized exchanges that are already existing. Okay, so I think I think I think that that's a very 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 good point. Um, let's let's move to the implications, and I mean there's lots of implications. Let's talk about users and funds because I think that that's the first point of call. Um, before this whole thing happened, I tweeted out and I said, "Get your money out of FTX." This is financial advice. I was taken to task by that. I got uh, multiple threats. Turns out that well, I was possibly right, or the information that was was possibly right. There were some users that never took their money out of FTX. Even and, and a lot of it as a result of the fact that Sam came out multiple times and said, you know, don't worry, our assets do cover our liabilities, you've got nothing to worry about. What happens to the user funds now? And why I'm asking this is because we know of another famous case where this happened, which was Mount Cox. And we know that users in Mount Cox still haven't got their funds. And we're talking about Mount Cox must have been, what, uh, eight years ago? Eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. So do you think that that's what's going to happen now with people that have money on FTX? Yeah, uh, Unfortunately. There's, there's, there's two good examples to learn from. One is Mt. Gox, which lost a bunch of money and has gone through the, the normal regulated bankruptcy proceeding. None of the victims have been repaid at all eight years later um, versus uh, Bitfinex, like a year or two after that, which had a huge hack, lost a bunch of money. And they actually became much more creative, tokenized a debt issuance and ended up making all the depositors whole through that. 
Um, what they did there was kind of, well, let's just say would be looked down upon by any normal regulator. And yet that, that market innovation actually repaid people within like one to two years in full versus the legal system that Mt. Gox has been going through. So just so for people that went through, because I, I know we were around in 2017 or 20, whenever that happened, 2016, 17, 18, the, the, the time is different for me. But what happened was Bitfinex suffered, suffered a, a huge hack and they couldn't make good. I didn't have enough money to make good. So they issued a token, which was a, a token which, which vowed to make people whole. They were going to buy back the token to make people whole um, uh, from the profits or the revenue of the exchange. And over time, they did make people whole by buying back the tokens. And during the period where they were doing this, the token used to fluctuate. Uh, the, the price of a token used to fluctuate until eventually they repaid the entire debt. So they, they used very smart financial engineering and token engineering. Uh, and a lot of people then at that time criticized them for maybe being on the wrong side of the law. There was a lot of legal scrutiny as to this, what this instrument actually was. But ultimately, they managed to trade out of it. If, if, if they managed to trade their way out of it. So that's what happened in, in, in 2018 or whenever it was. It's not happening now, though. Now, yeah, I don't think it can, unfortunately. I think it's a really, it was a clever idea. The, the challenge here is, you know, in that situation, what you had was there was an external thing that happened, which was a hack. And then the relationship of funds was with, between the business and the users. In this case, you have a number of other creditors, which are also centralized entities. So they've lent out, they've borrowed. You know, there's a criminal situation here of who's liable ultimately. Uh, there's a preference stack on the debt. Um, you know, there's the equity holders. So the complexity of the liabilities here is so much more that I think, you, you know, the, the, the simplicity of, hey, we lost user funds through a hack, I'm going to give you a token, I think made that a possibility. Here, we need somebody to sit down and figure out, well, legally speaking, based on the contracts that were signed in all these jurisdictions, who's entitled to what? And, and at the same time, that understanding will help us figure out who's criminally liable here. And so I think it's 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 a it's a sufficiently different situation that I think that sort of a model it's it's not clear to me how we would do that if, even if we wanted to. So what do you think happens? I mean, there's a lot of people that are watching the show and have money on FTX. I mean, let's tell them what we think is going to be the road for them to get their money back, and whether they can expect to get any kind of money back. Ben, what do you think? Um, I, I think it's going to be another Mt. Gox case. It's it's going to take a long time. I think the key difference between uh, FTX and Bitfinex is trust. Uh, when you get hacked, you still gain the user trust um, somehow that uh, you're not the bad actor. But here, I, I don't think any of the, the users or, or the creditors would trust FTX uh, or, or Sam, uh, whatever he says now. So there's no more option for him to pull. Well, um, so that's why I think... Um, well, Sam's gone. I mean, Sam effectively resigned as CEO. He's, he's effectively a non-entity, neither in the Bahama, Bahamanian entity nor in the, in the U.S. entity. So if Sam's, Sam's a non-entity here. We, we have a liquidator who's been appointed both in the Bahamas and in the USA. And, uh, you know, th their job is to try and maximize revenue. But not being in the U.S. myself and not understanding U.S. law and U.S. process myself, what I'm struggling to understand is whether this is something that's going to take 12 months and then users are going to get their money wound up, or whether this is something that's going to take five years, and maybe users are going to get a fraction of their money. I think it's going to take 10 years. I mean, another data point here that you might be able to use, uh, you know, beyond Gox from a, from a traditional financial system is the Bernie Madoff situation. 
And about, you know, that happened in 2013. And the last number I saw was, was last year, right? So eight years later, about 80% of the funds had been returned. Um, and, and so, you know, even, even eight years later, they still hadn't managed to get all the money back and return it to people. Uh, and, and, you know, in the first couple of years, it's just unraveling what the hell is even going on. So I think for a few years, I would say two to three years, nobody gets anything. Hopefully between years three, four, five, six, seven, you know, a big chunk of it can be uncovered and unraveled and sent back. But even there, I think you, you're probably getting, you know, 60 to 80 cents on the dollar, if you're lucky. Well, and inflation will have beaten half of that also. Well, that's Eric, that's actually my next question to you. I know that you were involved in Gox. I know you had money on Gox and you're waiting to get your money back on Gox. The interesting thing around Gox was when the Bitcoin, at the time, the Bitcoin price was very low. And so the exchange couldn't repay back all its users. But since then, the price of Bitcoin went up quite a bit. And now it's actually a very lucrative bankruptcy. There's actually much more money than, than the dollar value which people deposited at the, at the time. What happens in a situation like that? Do you get a claim on the amount of Bitcoin that you deposited? Or do you get a claim on the amount of US dollars that the Bitcoin were worth at the time? So, yeah, this is a fascinating story that could only happen in crypto. But... um. I mean, the way it works, you know, both in Japan where Mt. Gox was based, and I think in most places in the world, is that when there's a bankruptcy, um, all the creditors have a, a debt denominated in the, the primary currency of that market. So, um, you know, in the legal tender. Legal tender laws are basically about what you must use to repay a debt. And um, so the, the, the debts to all the creditors, to all the users, were denominated in, in fiat, either, either yen or dollars, I'm not sure. Um, and they had some amount of Bitcoin. And back then, that amount of Bitcoin wasn't nearly enough to cover the dollar debt that they owed. But this legal process has taken so long that the Bitcoin that they had uh, has appreciated such that not only can they repay everyone 100 cents on the dollar, um, there's like a ton of extra money. And the, a year or two ago, uh, I don't remember what Bitcoin price was at that point, but like... Um, Mark Carpellis, the, the CEO, who basically was responsible for this whole collapse, was going to end up getting like a billion dollars after all the creditors, um, which had like never happened before in Japanese history. Because, of course, if there's an insolvency, the, you know, the, the owner's not going to get anything. He's last in line. Um, and so uh, Mark was basically trying to tell the, um, the Japanese authorities, like, do not give me a billion dollars because... You know, the Yakuza will come after me and I'll be killed because they're all owed money from years ago. And, but the Japanese legal system is is mechanical and it's going to pay out as its processes say to do. Um, totally an amazing story. And, you know, that's unlikely to happen in this case um, simply because it'll be harder for Bitcoin to do 100x in the next five years than it was in the, in the prior, you know, 10. But um, it's certainly possible that if it drags out a lot, the crypto tokens that they have could appreciate. It's also possible that in liquidation, they have to sell everything. And in that case, um, this wouldn't apply at all. So let's talk about those kind of implications. The exchange and Alameda slash FTX. And again, the reason why I, I don't know which entity owns what after all the loans, but they were huge investors in multiple ecosystems. Solana, it's Solana being, I think, the most famous, but multiple ecosystems. Every investment that we heard of, we heard about the fact that Alameda was somewhere on their, on their, on their, on their um, uh, balance sheet somewhere. 
on the one hand, that represents a whole lot of tokens that are now going to be locked up in a legal process for a long period of time, which represents a whole lot of illiquidity, right? So like, let's say, for example, FTX or Alameda were due to get a whole lot of Solana tokens. Now those Solana tokens are going to be sitting with a liquidator or, or, or something and possibly going to be locked up for many years. I mean, from what, from what you guys are saying. How does this affect the, the industry? And you know, the reason I say that, that, according to my calculations, Alameda probably had about 10% of the tokens of Solana, more or less. I mean, maybe less, maybe more, but that's the indications. How does that affect the Solana ecosystem from a validation point of view, from a security point of view, from, a, from an overhang of token point of view? It ain't good. It ain't good. I think a lot of it depends on if they're forced to sell the tokens or not. And I, I, don't, I don't know what the legal process will dictate in that regard. Abhishek, what do you think? I, I think, so there's, there's two aspects to this, right? So there is the financial aspect of what happens with these tokens. I suspect now that they've entered bankruptcy as of this morning, they just can't touch the assets. And so even if they're unlocked and they're sitting on the balance sheet, you now have illiquid assets. Like those, those can't hit market for some time, most likely. Um, so in some sense, that's, you know, now supply that's been taken off the market. There's the second question here, though, of what role did they play in the ecosystem between market making, uh, liquidity on exchange, um, you know, uh, engineering resources on projects and so on. And I think those are really critical value adds to any ecosystem. And so I think this is this is the crucible moment, I think, in particular for the Solana ecosystem. Um, you know, they have their hands in a, in a lot of ecosystems, but this is like, you know, this is like the, the DAO hack or, or you know, this is, these are like existential moments for communities. And if you manage to get through that as a community, that, that's actually what bakes your community. Like that's actually that moment of stress and existential potential failure that turns your community into something that will be durable and actually survive. So I think if, the, if these communities can actually get through it, and get to the other side and, and make progress and retain their developers and keep making you know great apps that people actually want to use, I actually suspect it'll be really, really good for them. It's hard so and it's painful, but it's going to be good long-term if they manage to make it through. So let me ask you the question directly then. Um, given the fact that SBF and FTX were so pivotal in the Solana ecosystem, they own a big stake of the tokens, they were early investors, they were investors in multiple early projects, they were a launch pad for multiple projects, they were market makers for projects, and most of all, they provided an exchange for, for Solana projects to get early liquidity um, on the one hand. Uh, the other big contributor for the Solana ecosystem was Multicoin Capital. And what we heard from Multicoin Capital earlier this week was that between 10 and 20% of the AUM got wiped out because it was left on FTX. And not, there's, no one knows how much of that they're going to get back and when they're going to get that back and if they're going to get that back. Um, on the other hand, the firepower that Multicoin were providing for Solana, because Multicoin were also big investors in the Solana ecosystem, has now been, it's, it's almost like you've taken away a whole lot of their ammunition. But on the other hand, yeah. on the other hand, Solana projects, Solana has got a community and there are projects being built and there are smart people building on Solana and specifically using, you know, the Rust language and a lot of cool applications being built. What do you think as Abishal, what do you think is the future of Solana? Are you guys invested? I know you're going to try dodge this question, which is why I'm going straight for the for the for the the top of the needle. Yeah. So you know, I I'm I'm actually very optimistic about the Solana ecosystem. Um, you know, 
I, I don't know if it matters. It's worth disclosing, you know, as, as a, as an investor, not financial advice, obviously, but you know, we don't hold any Solana on the books. We didn't have any FTT. We were not investors in FTX. We're not you know, FTT. So we, we don't have the direct exposure to, to many of these things. I also think it's a little, um, we have to be careful to ascribe too much value to the VCs. Like the VCs aren't the ones doing the work at the end of the day. And the Solana ecosystem is much, much bigger than any one or two investors at this point. Um, and, and what we've seen, you know, especially in talking with many of the teams, like we're investors in some of the bigger projects in the space, is everybody's tremendously motivated. Like the, the fundamentals of the technology that got those people in the door have not changed. Uh, you know, many of these teams are well capitalized and they'll make it through this round. So I think at this point, it's, it's less about FTX, it's less about any individual VC because there's plenty of capital available in the world now and plenty of capital in the space. I think it's much more about do the community members who ultimately are writing code and building product and shipping that stuff manage to, to persist for the next two years and keep shipping and cre cre keep creating user value. And if they do, they'll be fine. If, Eric, if they don't, then it falls apart. Eric, I want to ask you the same question. Um, I don't know what your views were on Solana before this happened. I'm keen to hear what your views were on Solana before this happened and what your views are now that this has, that this has happened. Um, I don't really have any particular views on Solana, uh, either before or after. I, I've never owned it. Um, to the degree that it is open source and decentralized, then yes, it's true that any particular party being destroyed um, should not be too deleterious. And certainly the anti-fragility effect can happen if any if any community goes through a crisis and emerges on the other side. But um, yeah, I don't have any particular information or opinion on it. Ben, what do you think, I mean, of the future of the Solana ecosystem? I know it's difficult for you because you're an exchange owner and you've got to display some kind of neutrality across multiple ecosystems, but I think you're also familiar with the Solana uh, ecosystem and all the projects building there. What do you think? I think in the very beginning, people see Solana as the kind of the FTX ecosystem, um, kind of very related, like you said, whatever project was listing on Solana, it got listed on FTX. So I think that it had the, the jumpstart effect. But, you know, I also talked to the Solana people and, and gradually, I think since early of this year, uh, I, I think there is, you can, is is not mingled anymore. Uh, you can see that Solana become a lot more independent, and um, and and actually they work with even Bybit on many projects that listed on Bybit um, and all that. So I, I'm not too concerned with Solana. I think you, they will take a hit just because initially uh, they were working with FTX, but I think market is is uh, absorbing that, and I, I sure hope that Solana ecosystem and all the people there are are going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get to the to the the question that I think a lot of people are asking us. It's almost like since May this year, we've been hit by one punch after another. If it wasn't Luna, it's been quantitative tightening, and if it, then it was Three Arrows Capital, and then it was the collapse of the lenders and Celsius and Voyager, and then probably the most the the one that we all least expected. SBF took down everyone else with him, or took down or collapsed and took down a lot of people with him. I suspect that we'll still see some unwindings, some, some casualties as a result of this. We, we were reading earlier about BlockFi and a huge loan between BlockFi and FTX, which probably can't be repaid. And there are many, many other stories about this. Do you think that we're done with Max Payne? Or do you think that now that this has happened, Max Payne is still to come? Arthur Hayes said that 
when Lehman collapsed, it was only six months later that, that the market bottomed and Max Payne actually happened because of all the unwindings that were related to Lehman. Do you think that this is the same kind of analogy? Do you think that there's still six months of unwinding and casualties that are going to come before yeah. we reach the point of Max Payne? No, I think, I think there's more to come. I, I wish there weren't, but I think there is. I think this, the, these guys just had their tentacles in so many things that it's going to take a long time to unravel that. I mean, we're hearing on a, on a small, you know, if I'm hearing about small stuff, we mostly invest at the early stage. You know, it's, we mostly dodged it. We were mostly not in that ecosystem. And still I have people reaching out to us saying, Hey, we had, you know, a million dollars on the exchange because we, we had USDC and that was the easiest way to move money around for, for paying certain bills. Uh, I had a, I had a startup reach out to me yesterday, um, you know, saying that, um, they had 25% of their reserves sitting in FTX. And, and there were some reasons they were doing that that made a lot of sense for their business model. Um, and, you know, what do you do if you lose 25% of your operating capital? Like these, these they're going to be downstream. And these are, you know, small companies, right? We don't know, you know, we just don't know how much leverage was in the system. We don't know who owes whom what. Like, we, I think it's going to take a couple months for this to unwind. I think we're just at the beginning, unfortunately. Yeah. Um agree with that i mean you you can recognize that this whole calamity is still fallout from luna potentially like it's it's possible that this was downstream from that crisis right like where where did alameda's huge losses come from yep not clear yet i wouldn't be surprised if a huge portion of them came from the collapse in in luna earlier this year so yeah these dominoes keep falling um the main difference of course in this ecosystem versus you know the normal banking world in 2008 is that markets are here to handle this stuff. There's no bailouts. Like this stuff will get cleaned up through markets. And that's very refreshing. That's very wonderful. And we will end up with a healthier ecosystem because the bad actors get weeded out of this ecosystem. And in traditional finance, the bad actors get a bailout and get bigger. It's like a, a fundamental difference here. And so even yeah. though it's painful in the short term, over the long term, this is what makes a better financial system. Yeah, I think the Darwinian aspect of, of this is, is I 100% agree with Eric. Like, I think we will come out of this much more quickly and much stronger than the financial system was able to come out of 2008 or, or even 2001. And exactly for that reason. Like, I think we'll unwind this very quickly. The bad actors will get flushed out relatively quickly um, and we'll build back a lot stronger. I 100% I agree. I think the, the evolutionary pace of crypto is like four years is, you know, 20 in traditional markets. It's, it's really, really fast. Ben, what do you think? No, I think uh, I agree. Um, I, I think uh, just the magnitude of the whole, uh, I, what I hear now is 10 billion. Um, once those credited list is, is transparent, you will see a lot of companies and individuals falling. I, I think uh, the unwinding is probably going to take a while, but it's not going to be six months. I, I think probably one month <laughs> in crypto time. <laughs> I mean, you see how fast FTX fall. Uh, and so how fast the unwinding will be, right? So, I mean, uh, that, that's how where we are. Yeah. I mean, does anyone have any explanation as to why the FTX uh, uh, token still has some kind of value? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the charts here. It's still trading. I'm, I'm trying to get a chart that's not on FTX. Uh, let's actually get on Bybit. So if I look at the FTX chart on Bybit, Still got it's still in the top hundred tokens. It's still a top one hundred project. It's it's trading at two dollars forty three. Uh, I guess the two dollars forty three. Let's just see where where it is on the on the top one hundred. Um, 
or maybe it's maybe finally it's fallen out of the let's, let, let's actually quickly do a search but i mean is this just because people are uninformed because people are still speculating because it because it's a meme coin yeah i mean you've got yeah. a market cap yeah, it's of a dead cat bounce yeah <laughs> it's a billion dollar it's a billion dollar market cap yeah the ftt token currently still has a billion dollar market cap um ironically i think if you look at celsius is this just gamblers and celsius has a market cap of $250 million. It's the 128th biggest token today. Is this just retail not knowing what they're doing and just speculating? I mean, I don't know. Am I the only one who sees that these entities are insolvent? FTT was like 300 million market cap, not a billion. I think you looked at the trade volume, but the point still stands. I mean, yeah, why the hell is anyone owning this right now? I don't know. Uh, Shiba Inu is still like a multi-billion dollar project. Um, a lot of people are just buying and selling things because they like to speculate and gamble. That's always been a part of the industry and it, and it will be into the future. Um, and of course, something that could happen through bankruptcy is that somehow these assets get repurchased and that token could have a future. Like it's possible. I'm not going to bet on it, but other people feel like they want to. So fine. People should be able to gamble on what they want to gamble on. And uh, if they're being dumb, then they'll lose their money. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Does anyone else have any other views? Because I'm, I'm baffled by this. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled well, by it's, this. It's also a little bit of a function of how we calculate market cap. You know, we just sort of take this naive, there's some exchange with, you know, a dollar price and and we're multiplying it by the circulating supply. And it could be, you know, for all we know, there's, you know, 10,000 tokens circulating. And it's, you know, two people trading them back and forth to each other. You know, the, the circulating supply, all these numbers are kind of, you know, there's a lot of opacity in what, what's Fair happening. Fair enough. So. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, two things, two other points that I wanted to address just before I let you guys go. So the first thing is we got reports yesterday that withdrawals were being made, and we saw this actually on chain, that withdrawals were being made, and the news was, or the, I don't know if it, if, it, if it was confirmed or not, but it was people with KYC accounts in the Bahamas getting paid. Does this, does this surprise you at all? Do you, did you guys hear anything about this? No, um, yeah, I, I've seen it in the communities that even people are buying the, the passport or trying to get someone from Bahamas to do the KYC for them so they can withdraw. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's confirmed, uh, but I've seen something happening on, on Twitter and in our communities. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy. All right, one last thing that I want to bring up with you guys, and that is this over here, which again, with the community, our community members have sent us, and that is, you know, it says, did you know that Alameda CEO Caroline Capital's dad, Glenn Ellison, is at the Department Head of Economics at MIT. Uh, prior to getting appointed, he was with Gary Gensler at MIT. Um, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's father was involved in, in, in uh, doing stuff with, with uh, Gary Gensler and stuff like that. And there's, here it is. It's uh, Joseph Bankman, Stamp oh, hold on, let me just go back there. Joseph Bankman, Stanford professor and dad of SBFFTX, is cited a lot in this 2018 document, tax complying in the decentralized economy, oddly just before SBF and FTX arrived onto the crypto scene. Bankman was working on a new IRS tax filing system. Um, I mean, do you think that this, that this could be possible and that regulators in Washington could be possible? I don't think you want to ask me that. I mean, the, Tell me why. The... The corruption in Washington is apparent. It's not even worth pointing out anymore. Um, people continue to like vote for these people and support him. And um, yeah, there's there's better ways to use one's time, you know, build, building around 
this corrupt system is what we're trying to do in crypto with open, honest finance. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I think I, I probably did want to ask you then uh, in, in all probability. Um, okay. Lastly, I mean, I think that there are a lot of people here that are watching this and as I said, we've all been through a lot. We've been through Luna. We've been through Three Hours Capital. We've been through Celsius. We've been through BlockFi. We've been through Voyager. We've been through, through, through a lot. We've seen, been through quantitative tightening and interest rate increases. Tell us why we shouldn't lose our conviction in this industry. Most people that are in this industry have lost money. Statistically, most people that have entered crypto have landed up losing money in crypto. Give us oh. a message. Tell us, why, tell us why people should still be hopeful in this industry. I don't think that the average person has lost money in crypto. Like that's probably statistically not true. The average person has probably lost some money in crypto, but not on net. Like I've lost the money in crypto. person on net has lost money in crypto because most people came in at much higher prices. Most people that were bought into the ecosystem were bought into the ecosystem at much higher prices than we're at today. And most of them are correct. What's, what's I, that I did on? have the stat. I did have the stat, but, uh, but, I did have the stat. I don't have it in front of me, but it, I mean, there was a stat that was published around something like that. Yeah, I, I would be very skeptical if you could do a full calculus of like um, market value gain and loss among all participants over the last you know, 12 years. Um, I think quite the opposite. I think crypto remains like the greatest creator of wealth that we've ever seen. And but is that true? I mean, I get it because there were a whole lot of there were a few people who bought very early in the game. And when I say very early, for the purposes of this discussion, let's say very early was before 2019. And those people all are up on their investment. I mean, unless you're tens of millions of people before 2019. So if that's a few, I, I don't know. Relative to maybe 100 million people that came into this bull market. But they don't all buy the top, right? Like you, they're buying on average at the average prices. And so, yeah, a lot of people are down. A lot of people are way up. I don't know where the net result is, but I don't think you can, um, I don't think you can easily claim that on net people have lost money when there's actually a market cap that exists that's positive. That's almost mathematically impossible. Ben, what do you think? I mean, do you think that net net more people have made money or lost money in crypto? As a number, not as a quantum. Um, I think if you... Um... If we're in a beer market now, uh, and most people with their fresh memory came into the crypto in the bull market, they possibly lost money. Uh, but it really depends on the time frame we're talking about, right? So if I have to tell any uh, audience watching this show is that uh, believe in this technology. Um, I think this technology will, will offer freedom, uh, freedom from the many corruptions and problems we currently see. Um, uh, with, with, you know, with the current financial systems, um, the inflation and, and all the, the real, relentless printing of money uh, and the problem with fiat. Um, so I, I think we're all, all here because we believe in this technology uh, and look in the long run. So actually, I think in the short run, people are losing. But if in the longer frame, uh, I think people are, are making money. So I, I think this is something that um, um, we need to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd say like, look at, look at all the great phases of human innovation, you know, to take two examples, maybe like um, the, the internet companies, or like the railroad companies back in the late 19th century, around all these transformative technologies, you have crazy speculative manias and crazy losses for many people. And yet these technologies absolutely change the world and create net wealth. But when you're in the midst of the storm, it can feel very scary and very dangerous. 
No one should be owning these assets who can't tolerate high risk. These are high risk assets. And I've told people from the very beginning when I learned about Bitcoin in 2011, do not put more money into this stuff than you can afford to lose. If you're comfortable speculating on a future volatile technology, then go for it. But walk into it with your eyes open and don't get all pissed off, you know, if the volatility is hard for periods of time. I suffered through like 95, 98% declines in Bitcoin in the early years. Why am I not gone? Because Bitcoin keeps working. It never broke. Ethereum's still working. It never broke. DeFi works. It's not broken. All these technologies are actually working and running. And so don't, don't uh, focus too much on the bad actors and on the mistakes, on the missteps. That is always going to be happening with a frontier technology. Yeah, I must say, if I, if I could add anything to that, I would say that having seen a couple of revolutions, none as big as this, obviously, but having seen mobile phones, internet, et cetera, et cetera, the one thing is that we're in the very early stages and it's very easy to, to take stock at a time like this when, as you say, we're in the, in the middle of the storm. But look at the big picture. And if you really have conviction about what this technology is about, if, you, if you're here because you truly believe that you want to be a part of a decentralized movement where governments can't regulate and can't control and can't print more money, then you just have to do what Eric did and pretty much just hold. And when you do, you'll probably be greatly rewarded. Anyway, on that note, I'm going to bid our guest farewell. Eric, thank you. Ben, thank you. It's been amazing having you. And I know Avishal jumped off because yep. he had some time constraints. Thank you for being with us. To the Banter Fam, thank you, Eric. To the Banter Fam, great to see you guys. Just remember that our Friday banters are brought to you guys by NordVPN, and they are the VPN that protects the crypto community. And uh, guys, what you need to do is uh, support NordVPN. For just $3 a month, what you can do is take out a VPN and protect yourself and protect your crypto um, and when you do that, not only are you protecting yourself and protecting your crypto, but you're also helping a sponsor that's bringing this crypto content to you guys in the bull market, in the bear market. And you'll see that they're bringing us this weekend. We're publishing a full documentary on the future of Solana, given this FTS, this F SBF thing. We've literally gone and analyzed SBF and F Alameda and FTX and how much they owned and what they did in the industry. And then we've compared it to the industry itself and the people of Solana. And we've interviewed the people at Solana and the builders. And we're going to bring you guys a full documentary. And that one's also coming to you from NordVPN. So listen, go and support NordVPN. $3 a month. They're unbelievable. Last, last week, you guys gave them huge support. If you weren't here last week, do it. It's the best way to save your crypto. Surf anonymously. Surf anonymously. Protect your identity. Yeah, go and take out a, a NordVPN. Uh, I will see you guys again tomorrow. Twice, actually. We are bringing you guys two things tomorrow. One is the Solana documentary. And two, we are bringing you a Sam Bankman-Fried and Gary Gensler working together expose. And I have a feeling, uh, my, my videos aren't working yet, but I have a feeling that BitBoy... Right? That's, there's no sound. that a big story is coming out. I suppose he's coming out with the same story. So, I mean, stay tuned. It's going to be a juicy, 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 juicy weekend. Anyway, I'll see you guys again tomorrow. And then I'll see you guys again on Monday from, the, from South Africa, from Cape Town, back at the studio. Until then, have a great weekend. Stay safe out there. And follow us on Twitter for updates. Follow us on Twitter for updates. Uh, and trade well, my friends. See you guys soon. Thank you.